Welcome. This is the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. This week we're talking about elections. There's been a special House of Representatives election this week in Arizona. And we're also going to talk about the electoral landscape heading into 2018 and beyond. A major question being whether there will be a shift in power back uh, to the Democrats in 2018. And here's a, here's a fact. Uh, over the past 21 midterm elections, the president's party, the sitting president, has lost an average of 30 seats in the House, an average of four seats in the Senate. And there'll be a trivia question at the end of the podcast related to that. And right now it, it's, it's at uh, 51 Republicans and 49 Democrats in the Senate, and there's a difference of about 45 uh, in favor of the Republicans right now. And I want to quote something that Trump said uh, this week at the CPAC conference. Uh, he said, quote, I know that whoever wins a presidency has a disadvantage for whatever reason in the midterms. You know what happens? I'm trying to figure it out. Historically, if you win the presidency, you don't do well two years later. And you know what? We can't let that happen, and I know what happens. Finally figured it out. Nobody has been able to explain it. It just happens. And he went on to say that what the Republicans need is more motivation, that the reason that they usually lose is that they're not motivated. They're tired out from the, from the presidential election and the midterms two years later they get, they get lazy. So what is your explanation uh, on that? Can you explain it? Why do the midterms usually turn out badly for the sitting president's party? I think it's principally because um, when a party wins the presidency, that tends to sweep in some congressional seats and U.S. Senate seats uh, that uh, might otherwise have been lost. So I think what happens is that when the year the president is elected, the numbers for his party are swollen, and you have sort of return to normalcy uh, then in the, the midterm. I, I, I don't think it's buyer's remorse or anything like that. But I also think it may be old news, not that I discount um, the fact that Democrats have the upper hand going into this election, but it has seemed to me that we've had a series of elections in which particularly independents sided strongly for one party or the other. In 2006 and 2008, uh, independents broke dramatically uh, for um, Democrats uh, based in 2006 on dissatisfaction with the progress of the Iraq war. And in 2008, just general fatigue um, with George W. Bush and Republican control of government. Then in 2010, independents went decisively um, for Republicans. Uh, and I attribute that to sort of sticker shock uh, over the Obama agenda. You had a nearly trillion-dollar um, stimulus package. You had Obamacare. You had bank bailouts, um, and I, I, that, that was the birth of the Tea Party. And, mm -hmm. and so I have seen it more driven by issues 
than the normal swing, and, and by the independents moving decisively one way or the other, as opposed to just going back and forth between the parties and one party's um, partisans being motivated and the other ones being dispirited. So you kind of see it as when the Republican is elected in a presidential year, the people that vote for that Republican or Democrat normally will mark the D or the R with the other candidates in Congress that year. So there's probably a natural shift back, but but you see like maybe some more specific factors in other Late, other elections lately, that have caused that too. Lately, given the rise uh, in the importance of the independent vote, uh, I am seeing more often the independents moving decisively towards one party or the other um, uh, more than the natural ebb and flow. And a lot of a lot of voters, independent voters, right, that voted for Obama also voted for Trump yes. in 2016, which is pretty interesting. Um, so do you, I mean, do you see the wave, the blue wave coming in general? There are signs that there is a blue wave coming, not, I mean, in, in the country in general. We're, we're going to talk about the, the Arizona races in just a minute. Certainly, I believe um, that so far there has been a blue wave. Um, Democratic turnout in special elections has been elevated beyond what it usually has been. Uh, Trump has been a uh, very much a unifier and a motivator um, for Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I anticipate that that will remain true. However, um, the uptick in the economy and the reality of the tax cut appears to be changing the dynamic. Um, So uh, there's a uh, tension there. Um, But I would anticipate larger-than-usual Democratic turnout around the country and in Arizona than you usually see in an off-presidential election. Right. Some signs I'm seeing, too, like a lot of hearing reports of a lot more women signing up to to run for office. And I just saw some numbers today, some Pew Research that said millennials, young people are fired up more and have a a much lower favorability opinion of of Trump than other demographics. We'll see if they come out to vote. Maybe this youth movement will inspire more people to come out to vote. There's no question that there's a generational divide Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to uh, Trump and and that he has a serious, serious problem among young adults. I will say I've heard for 30 years um, about the youth vote uh, coming out. And even it did elevate slightly um, in Obama's first election, uh, but... Uh, then instantly retreated to historically low levels. Yeah, I'm interested to see if if it'll be different this year because of the Trump factor and because of the uh, the the rise in the, in the activism around gun control. We'll see if that plays out. Well, one of those house seats that's uh, that's up has been wild here in Arizona. 
And we've just had a special election, special primary election for the U.S. House of Representatives in West Phoenix. Uh, it's an older district. It's a very conservative-leaning district. Um, and it's just been a wild situation. There's been scandals all over the place. Trent Franks, who was the representative there, uh, resigned a few months ago after a scandal in which he was propositioning his female staff members to be a surrogate mothers uh, for his for his baby, inappropriate uh, conversations and investigation was looming. So he decided to step down immediately. So he steps down and we have the special election, the primary just finished this week. And two other Republicans that were competing for a spot, the top two, Steve Montenegro was caught with flirtatious texting with one of his staffers, which their entire conversations got released to the media. And uh, Debbie Lesko, who ended up winning the primary, was under question for for giving uh, $50,000 of her campaign money to a super PAC that supported her. And the craziest part about this for me is that the general election for this seat is on April 24th, and they're going to have to do it all again, a whole new election in November with all the other elections happening. Um, do you think that by winning this primary, it's a very Republican-leaning uh, district, does Debbie Lesko pretty much guarantee your place in Congress past November and beyond and maybe indefinitely? I believe the answer to that is yes. Um, she won the primary convincingly. Um, she got about 35% of the vote. Um, her next closer competitor only got 24%. And there were several um, fairly significant uh, participants. So that was a very impressive victory. Even though Democrats are bragging about how turnout for them was higher than usual, um, you still in this primary had twice as many Republicans as Democrats vote. And the Republican registration advantage is overwhelming. Uh, and even if there is a surge in Democratic turnout because of the Trump effect that we talked about, uh, the Republican vote in that district is in significant part over 60. Um, they show up, they vote, even though that it's going to be a special election. Um, so it would truly turn the political world topsy-turvy uh, if a Democrat were where the Democratic nominee was to uh, prevail, which I do not anticipate. I also believe that Lesko's um, convincing win, the margin of her victory, means that she's highly unlikely to face uh, any significant challenger when we repeat this primary um, in August. What about the $50,000 campaign thing? I know it's it seems complicated, even... I think people were trying to figure out, was this legal? Was this appropriate? Does that have any chance? What's your take on that? Does that have any chance on impacting maybe her seeing another challenger in the primary just around the corner? Uh, I do not. Um, and uh, for the most part, I think this was a uh, accusation drummed up by political opponents that doesn't have uh, much to it. What she did was that she had raised money for a re-election campaign for the state legislature. That money she could not use uh, in 
her congressional race with her campaign. So it was given to a super PAC, which then ran a campaign on her behalf. Now, uh, you cannot coordinate between an independent expenditure and a campaign, uh, and a candidate campaign. So, uh, but the Federal Election Commission has fairly consistently said that fundraising uh, isn't an act of coordination. And in the last presidential race, for example, uh, not the last one, but going back to 2012, supporters of Barack Obama and supporters of Mitt Romney, active in their campaign, um, actively raised money for independent expenditure campaigns that were going to be conducted on their behalf. So my anticipation is, is that nothing comes of this complaint. And um, the one thing that she does, the one thing that the super PAC appears to be guilty of is failure to disclose the contribution accurately at the beginning. But if there were no coordination, which there shouldn't uh -huh. have been, then that's something of which she could not have had knowledge or been involved. Well, then why, if she's got this money, $50,000, why would she not just spend it herself on campaign rather than giving to that super PAC? And then if it's all above board, why not just report it as, as it was? Because legally that money couldn't be transferred to her congressional campaign committee. She, the federal election law prevents that. Um, so it was just there. Um, and paradoxically, uh, it could be given to a super PAC, an independent expenditure campaign. But she couldn't have spent it on it. her own she couldn't have. She couldn't have spent it directly. So this is just a peculiarity. Where did it come from? It wasn't, it wasn't, donate, it wasn't it was campaign my, it, donations? Yes, it was campaign donations that she raised to run for the state legislature. It was a re-election Oh, fund. for the state legislature. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that, that so, kind so, of so, so the, these are two peculiarities of federal law that it could be given to an independent expenditure campaign, not, which fitted on her behalf, transferring to but it could not be run a new campaign. Yeah, it could All not right. be given to her, and that fundraising isn't considered coordination. Gotcha. Well, that clears that up. Do you think so? The Democrat nominee, um, is Haral Tip Tippernini, uh, a doctor that that won her primary contest. Do you think she'll make an issue of that? What is her pitch, do you think, likely to be? Well, the, the Democratic National Committee issued a press release that in essence said that Leska was as bad as Trent Franks uh, because she would support Paul Ryan's agenda. So that's kind of typical ad hominem uh, politics. I. Uh, the question is, will the Democrats invest any money in this race? If they do, then I'm sure that they will try to make an issue of the laundering of this money. <clears throat> but they face a problem. Uh, Greg Stanton, who's, um, who, who is who the Democrats hope will hold, uh, Kirsten Sinema's seat in central Phoenix, has a large pot of money um, that he's raised as mayor that one way or another he plans to put to work uh, on his behalf. So it may be that they invest money in criticizing a tactic that 
their own candidate may end up using in a different congressional district. But consistency is never a concern <laughs> of uh, political parties and political consultants. So if money can be raised on her behalf, and my guess is it would be in the form of an independent expenditure campaign mm-hmm. rather than something that she controls, I don't doubt that they're, that one of the items on the attack list, Lesko list will be the alleged scandal of laundering this money. And the other seat that will be fought over is McSally's, Martha McSally's seat in Tucson that she's leaving. And this is one thing that's maybe a little, little quirk is that if you're in the state and if you're in the state, um, if you're a state Senator or state representative, if you announce for a new position that you're running for, you have to leave immediately. Right. In, until the last year in office. Until the last year in office. Yes. But McSally, who's announced that she's running for the Senate, is still serving in the U.S. House Representatives in uh, in Tucson. Right now in Arizona, because of the open Trent Frank seats, we've got four Democrats and four Republicans uh, represented. Real quick about the about the Senate race, though, do you think any? There's a lot of lot of shifts happening. Trump's uh, changing gears in terms of his party line a little bit on gun control and also perhaps on immigration. How do you see that affecting our, I mean, the Senate race between Cinema, a very strong uh, Senate Democratic candidate uh, with a lot of money, and then uh, McSally is still competing, uh, even though she's got a lot more money than um, Kelly Ward. Trump's um, shifting policies uh, could affect the uh, Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Kelly Ward uh, was positioning herself to run as the authentic Trump supporter uh, and depicting McSally um, as a uh, pretender who um, failed to even say whether she voted uh, for Trump in the 2016 election. However, um, Ward has also come out and harshly criticized Trump's immigration plan. Uh, as, as paradoxically, um, too, too generous uh, to uh, the dreamers. Uh, McSally has applauded that plan and has uh, developed her own plan, which is very, very similar. Uh, I think you might see a comparable issue arise with respect to gun control. Uh, if Trump continues down the line of being in favor of gun control, which uh, the National Rifle Association has traditionally opposed, um, such as increasing the age at which you can buy an uh, assault rifle, um, my guess is Ward would be critical of that, and who knows where McSally would land. So uh, Trump is confusing um, Ward's strategy of saying, I'm the Trump loyalist, she's the pretender. Because where is Trump? Where is he? How do you, I mean, there's, I think there's frustration on all sides of what is, if he stands for one thing, at least we could have a firm target where we can negotiate around and, and, but when there's, when there's a shifting target, when there's no real Trump that you know was going to be consistent, it affects not only people that are trying to negotiate against him to get a compromise, but also people in the 
you know, in the congressional races that are trying to uh, stick their hats to be the the Trump loyalists. So that's that's an interesting dynamic. We'll yep. see how that how that plays out. A couple other quick things before we get to the trivia, the congressional trivia question. <clears throat> there's been a poll that I've seen thrown about. I think that um, there's an article in the Arizona Capital Times about Doug Ducey's, the governor of Arizona's chances in November. And the and the kind of the headlines and the tweets that I saw were indicating that he might be vulnerable to a Democratic challenger. What's your interpretation of that? How do you see that playing out in 2018? Well, I, I tend to discount polls as early, and I also tend to discount um, public polls. Uh, and there is a track record of public polls underestimating ultimate Republican voting strength. Uh, but um, even given those things, this poll was not bad news for Doug Ducey. Uh, he was running several percentage points ahead of a generic Democrat, much less a named uh, Democrat. Uh, and it, it was sort of amusing. The poll was done by a Democratic consultant, and it pointed out that Ducey was somewhere with about 30-some percent of the vote and said that uh, he would have to massively get uh, undecideds to come his to his side, and that's a very difficult thing to do in politics. Well, the generic Democrats at 28 20-some percent behind Ducey. Yeah. So if it's a tall order for Ducey, it's an even taller order for a, a Democratic alternative. The, Ducey's race could be affected by the Trump effect on turnout. Uh, and uh, whether the Democratic nominee, whoever it turns out to be, can make a credible case on the issue of um, funding K-12 through schools. Right. And... If um, the Democrats will invest the money in the race that's necessary to make that case, those are an awful lot of things that need to fall into place before you would put Ducey on the endangered species list. Yeah. One more, one more. Well, then I have a question for you. Okay, one more campaign question. So. It seems like the the 2020 presidential campaign has already has already kicked off. Trump at this at the CPAC conference this week also pretty much kicked off his 2020 campaign. And he hired his digital campaign manager to be his or digital strategy manager Brad Pascal to be his campaign manager. And uh, he might have a primary competitor. There's been whispers of Jeff Flake. Uh, perhaps running in 2020. That was fueled by a story that he's accepted an invitation to a politics and eggs or politics and breakfast, something in New Hampshire, which is the first primary. Woody, is that all to do about nothing? Is there any credible threat from Flake, or do you, what's your take on that? I, I have underestimated uh, Jeff Flake in the past, even though I've known him very well for uh, many years, um, but I just do not see that in the cards. Um, uh, and, and, and I don't see that as uh, Flake's ambition. I, I see him wanting to uh, be the conscience of the conservative party, which he 
named his recent book uh, following Barry Goldwater. Uh, and it, it's awfully hard to say that if you can't survive a Trumpish challenge in your home state, which he left the U.S. Senate race because he concluded that he had no realistic path, path to victory. I don't know how you think you can uh, topple the guy nationally. Yeah. So I think my anticipation is, is that Flake is just trying to keep the flame alive of what he thinks conservatism in the Republican Party should represent uh, and that he regards Trump as an existential threat to. Yeah, I mean, I love his message, country over party, and you know, having a conscience and, and his his critiques. I love that. I wish I I wish and hope that that carries on. I do hope that there's some sort of Republican challenger that can channel that. But I, I agree that kind of a kind of an uphill battle, especially with the with the base Trump's base still still clinging to him. Maybe that will change, but. Well, my, my question to, to you is, why uh, is Trump such anathema uh, to young adult voters? Um, young adult voters have, for some period of time, particularly supercharged by Obama's first race, um, leaned uh, uh, Democrat. Uh, but uh, McCain and... Romney both got a fair share of what you would anticipate would be a young adult uh-huh. Republican vote, which Trump did not get. I mean, there is a sharp generational divide. Over 35, Trump has an argu- argument to make. Under 35, they're not listening to him and, and are repelled by him. Why, why is that? I'll give you, one exa- I'll give you an example that, that stands out for me as a difference is... When Trump, when this when this shooting happened in in Parkland, Florida, um, Trump announces that he's going to give a statement, and and to me, Trump giving up and giving a statement about a school shooting, I mean, my stomach just got sick because he has zero moral authority whatsoever, and and to, to, just to to hear him trying to pretend to have empathy, and it's just it's it's sad, I think, and and you asked one time one of our maybe one of our first podcasts of um, <clears throat> you, you said that for your generation, you grew up with like Reagan as kind of like your, your, that was your president. I mean, for, for us, it was Obama for eight years and whatever you, you know, conservative, liberal, whatever, Obama is a stand up, a stand up guy who can uh, really, really articulate a, a deep thought and, and he has compassion. He connects with people. And I think you got that, you know, there's, he's got that moral leadership and moral moral credibility. When he when he speaks about something, you know, you you listen. And and Trump from the very beginning has just been, I think, trampling on every sort of moral expectation of a leader. You know, we in terms of being a role model, until in terms of uh, you know statements he made attacking sacred cows, and just in a kind of awful, awful way, and his attacks on on minority groups, and it's hard, I mean, it's hard for me, I get, I get emotional about it a little bit, and I try to, I try to kind of calm down, and 
um, not enter the fray because I don't want to kind of fuel the fire a little bit. But do, do, do you think this is part of it? I mean, Trump was the anti-political correct uh, candidate. He was the anti-identity politics candidate. And it seems to me that um, the uh, young adult generation has been seeped, uh, steeped in identity politics and uh, that's very much uh, the way young adults have been introduced to politics, talk about politics, uh, and are treated. So it just seems like it's it, like identity politics is more deeply embedded in that younger generation, and Trump was the anti-identity politics candidate. You know, it could be, but it, he's not authentic. He's not a voice. I think I think if a, if, a, if a guy came, or a guy or girl, a woman came, and was cutting through all that political correctness in an authentic, real voice, I mean, like a, I mean, like a Barry Goldwater, whatever. But Trump, I think young people just see through the fraud, that, that he is. How does he make his money? What is his tax returns? He lies every, every time he opens his mouth. He won't even testify with Mueller because he knows that he will incriminate himself by, by lying. I mean, I think, I think young people just see through all of that and just see through the total phony that he is. Yes, maybe there's... Uh, I, 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 I think we've just had an illustration of the generational divide with yeah. respect to Donald but I, Trump. But, but, to your, but to your question, I, I think that that's not all that there is. I think if someone was coming through saying real talk that was cutting through that identity politics stuff, that it would connect to people. And I, in the conversation with my students, they don't, they don't buy into that you know, with, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid with identity, identity politics, but there's just so much else going on with the, just the moral, the moral corruption that, that he represents. And even the fact that he's, that he's in the office, like to me, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to stomach. And it's also hard to stomach how so many, so many people in positions of power seem to just go along with it and because they want to get something out of it. So I think a lot of people personally know about Trump and have personal feelings that there has no business being in the Oval Office, but because they want to get a policy passed or they want to get something done, they'll they'll say something well, different to them to the media or to their to their. He, he and he won the office. He he is the president. Mm -hmm. If there are certain things that you want done, you yep. have to go through him. <laughs> yep. Well, um, deep breath here to get to the <laughs> to get to the trivia questions. Um, so I started out saying there's over the past 21 midterm elections, the president's party has lost an average of 30 seats in the House, an average of four seats in the Senate. In only two of those, in the last 21 midterms, has the president's party gained seats in both houses. Can you name the last two times where a president has gained in the midterms in both the House and the Senate? Well, I, I believe 2002. Um, George W. Bush's first victory was one of them. Yep, that's and, correct. Uh, <clears throat> I would, I would guess Lyndon Johnson in 1966, but I have a feeling that's incorrect. That's incorrect. The, the time previously that was uh, FDR 
uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. Democrat picked up a couple seats. Link, uh, excuse me, Clinton didn't lose any ground in 1998, but he didn't gain any in the Senate. He picked up a couple in the House, and then it stayed even in the Senate. But uh, those are the those are the two where both chambers were were gained in the midterms. Well, thank you very much for listening. It's been another episode of the Political Notebook podcast. You can find us on iTunes or any podcasting app, and we'll see you next week.